I think it was William Carey that said, God's will done God's way will never lack God's provision. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Good Theology. Hope you all are doing fantastic today. This episode is brought to you by Dwell Bible, an incredible company. Highly encourage you to check them out, download their app, listen to some scripture. It is a wonderful, transformative experience. At this point, you've probably heard me read this, so you do know that the Aperture Adult checks their device 261 times over the course of one single day, which means that so much of ministry happens in the palm of people's hands on their phones. So our sponsor, Dwell, has built a church platform that equips pastors to help their congregations stay anchored in God's Word with their popular audio Bible experiences. Now, if you would like to check it out for yourself, Dwell wants to give you a free one-year subscription. You can get that by texting the word GOOD to 39383. Again, that's G-O-O-D to 39383. They'll reach out to you and you can claim your free one-year subscription of their uh, Bible listening experience. The app is beautiful. Highly encourage you to check that out. I am joined today by my co-host, the one and only David Campbell. David, how are you today over there in Michigan, Indiana, wherever you are? I am in Michigan as we speak. I was in Miami last week. Yes. How was that? I wish I had never left Miami. <laughs> It is permanently summer in Miami. I tell you, I had never been there before. And what have I been doing all my life? You're in a wonderful place. It really is. I'm, I'm going there later this year in, in November. Um, and we were there last year too. It's, 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 uh, it's beautiful there. So were you speaking at a church? I was speaking at uh, Pastor Alex Saget's church, which is Calvary, Miami, which is, I would describe it as a cross between a rock concert, and a Hispanic loving. <laughs> we are getting kissed by everybody. I love that. That's right up your alley. <laughs> right up my alley. Well, it was amazing. Well, what wasn't up my alley was going out to eat after the service at midnight. Wow. Man. That's, uh, that's late for me to be going out to dinner. Well, it's very late for me, but yeah. man, it's... Yeah. You guys must have had some pretty incredible services if you weren't getting to dinner until midnight. What? What's the story there? We did. We had we had a, uh, some great meetings. So one night we went out, and the other night we stayed on the church premises after we finished praying for everyone, and the whole staff hung around, and we started to eat about half past 10, I guess. So it was great. Anyway, it was a wonderful time, and all oh, the weather was just something else. And we glad. came back to no storm. Yes, well, I was going to say I'm glad you got some reprieve from from the winter weather, and it sounds like you had uh, an amazing ministry experience as well. God willing, in two weeks we'll be in California. Oh, that's right for uh, for Theos conference. So it'll be from glory to glory from Miami to Los Angeles Palm Springs Palm of all Springs. places yeah beautiful I love it um, okay so it's good to be back together love these conversations and just want to say uh, genuinely thank you 
uh, to everybody who who listens uh, to our show. Um, our listener base is growing, and uh, we just we 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 feel privileged that we get to do this uh, each week. So spread the word if you uh, have time. Go on YouTube, look us up, Good Theology, subscribe. Just helps us out a great deal. Um, and of course, if you can rate us on here as, as well, that that goes a long way. So. So David, I'm going to let you queue up the conversation today because you've had some stuff uh, that you've been ruminating on, um, stemming from your, you know, your own Bible reading and some things you've been thinking about lately. So, uh, why don't you queue us up today? Well, yeah, I I've just been pondering again that you know the the thing is that whenever there's a, a truth that kind of is rediscovered in the body of Christ, not discovered but rediscovered. Uh, people always run wild with it and tend to ruin it. And then everybody else runs away and doesn't want anything to do with it. And, you know, it's like, what was that all about? And o- over the course of my life, I can think of a, a, a bunch of things, uh, including, you know, deliverance, um, the faith movement, prosperity, uh, you know, various aspects of the charismatic move and so on. Uh, and certainly discipleship and shepherding which was uh, something that uh, profoundly impacted my life um, at the time I started my first church. And then everybody started attacking it for whatever reason. And, and, and then we got into this ludicrous position where nobody believes in discipleship, nobody believes in faith and miracles and healing and deliverance or anything else because right. they've been burned. And somehow I think, you know, we just got to, uh, come to a biblical balance. You know, one of the things that's really upsetting me, and I don't know how I get sent these Twitter things every day because I'm really not on Twitter, but some uh, people in the body of Christ uh, spend all their time throwing flaming darts at other Christians. And I was having a conversation about this um, uh, the other day in um, Indianapolis. We just been with our friends at Antioch Church in Indianapolis, and how how is it that people can be so uncharitable? You know, um, uh, I was asked by Theos to do a um, teaching on uh, Bill Johnson and Bethel's view of the doctrine of kenosis, which right. is the emptying of Christ, and the idea being that is all right if I proceed down this laneway for a moment. Of course, you, you can proceed down whatever lane you want. Well, you're the boss here, but anyway. Um, so uh, the, the, the idea in general is that uh, Bill uh, gave out an ill-phrased sort of teaching that, you know, Christ um, came into this world, he laid aside something, that's the issue, he laid aside something and wound up doing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, Uh that puts us on a level playing field with Christ because we also have access to the same Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can do all the miracles that Christ did. That's the kind of teaching. And of course, the fallacy, the problem in that is that regardless of uh, how Jesus limited himself in his incarnation, we are never on a level playing field with the eternal second person of the Trinity. That's the flaw um, in the argument. And and basically, um, Bill had in print in a couple of books that, you know, 
Jesus laid aside his divinity. This was the statement. Now, uh, that was a terrible, you know, it was, it was he, he didn't actually mean what he was saying, because if he meant what he was saying, he would say that Jesus came to stop being God, not as, not as God, which exactly. is a total, total heresy. That's not what he meant to say, but it is what he did say. And then he kind of blamed it on the editor at the publishing house, uh, and the particular publishing house that he published the book with was probably not the most theologically sophisticated. I'm not going to to um, mention the name of it, but, um, you know, to rely on them for theological sophistication probably is um, unwise. So all this is going on. And then eventually, years later, I mean, 12, 13, 14 years later, uh, you know, he puts out a video discussion in which he says, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, so that's the background to it. So how, how are you supposed to handle that? You know, if you're asked to give a critique, I don't like doing you you know having having to make a presentation that's an attack on somebody else in the body of christ but uh what i did was i prefaced it by saying bill johnson regardless of whether you agree with his theology or what parts of it you agree or disagree with bill johnson has done more to extend the kingdom of god than i ever will would do in 10 lifetimes so far be it for me to sit on a throne of judgment you know, in relation to Bill Johnson, I honored him and so on. And then I, then I laid it out and I said, well, this is what he should have said, you know, and, and this was the unwise part of it and tried to bring, I, I tried to teach into the whole idea of the emptying of Christ called the kenosis. I watched that teaching, by the way, and it was very charitable. Um, and, and I actually had a number of comments from people at, who were at, Bethel are at or were at Bethel saying uh, thank you, you know, for the way that I'd handled it um, because I'd like to be able to look Bill Johnson in the face if I bumped into him uh, somewhere. And, uh, you know, he is a friend, a, a friend of mine, John Arnott. Bill Johnson is a very close friend of John's. Uh, it's unlikely. I don't expect to bump into him, but if I did... Uh, I wouldn't want to, you know, feel sheepish in any way. The exit's an embarrassment mm -hmm. because I've been so nasty. Um, and so I feel that, uh, anyway, uh, I'm having this conversation in Indianapolis and we're talking about, uh, a, a certain pastor from Los Angeles that isn't, isn't Jake Sweetman and has a, um, you know, a, uh, a, a somewhat less charismatic perspective, shall we say, but very high profile. So. Those that work moving the word of knowledge can figure out who I'm talking about. Is he elderly uh, and does his ri name rhyme with MacArthur? Well, I, far be it for me to to say anything more than I have. But uh, why is it that there's a whole class of people um, who seem to spend half their time, uh, wow, you know, listen to that old school office phone ringing? That you are right. It's uh, I think it's that black phone behind you. Pick it up and hang it up. Will I dare you? <laughs> my my friend Rod, it's his office. I get in big trouble now. But anyway, so uh, so we're having this discussion, and on and and uh, and that reinforced by uh, this stuff on Twitter that I'm I'm seeing, and I think, and it's it's so exclusive. It's it's 
throwing people under the bus by the boatload, to mix metaphors, you know, in terms of this person's a heretic, that person's a heretic, you know, basically anybody that disagrees with your particular point of view is a heretic and is damned to hell and all the rest of it. And I think this is disgraceful. It's absolutely disgraceful. You know, we, we've got to, people live in an echo chamber. And one of the things that I think is really important is that for us as Christian leaders, that we never li live in an echo chamber. Do you and think that that's something that is uh, more pronounced in the Reformed tradition? No, I don't, actually. I, I, because I don't, that gentleman from Los Angeles, I do not consider to be Reformed at all although he throws that term around, because he's a dispensationalist, and you can't be just di dispensationalist. And okay, 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 okay. Well, well, well it's a, sure, totally. Think, but he's a self-identified Reformed person. I think it can go in a number of different directions, but uh, who, wherever it's coming from, uh, I think it's, it's, um, uh, it's wrong. And I think for all of us, we need to get out of our echo chamber, and one of the you know, virtues of traveling that w Elaine and I have done over the last number of years quite a lot is being in different churches that have different perspectives on certain matters. I mean, obviously, um, we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't, there's no point us ministering in a church that doesn't have the same fundamental kingdom of God perspective. But, you know, the forms of church government and different other things, the way that, you know, worship services are c conducted and, and so on. There's there's differences, you know, styles of leadership. There's differences, and yeah. and it's you and I come from two very different backgrounds. Sorry, I said you, even you and I come from two pretty different backgrounds, or very different in in some respects. Um, well, uh, you know, not everyone has all the advantages that I've had. So <laughs> anyway, uh, but as a Bible teacher, you know, Bible teachers are very picky people, and um. When I finished my book, Landmarks, which is my sort of book of doctrine, I, I sat at the end of it and I thought, I don't even know if I agree with myself uh, you know, on some of these topics. you know. And so what, what we have to do is learn to be charitable and flexible and uh, make distinctions between, we, we have to realize that we're not always right. None of us have a hotline to heaven. And we need to start getting out of our echo chamber you know, and start being in the presence of people that have slightly different perspectives on things and hopefully being able to sit down and argue things out from a theological perspective and in uh, my friend uh, Steve Znako in, in Indianapolis was uh, um, has read a lot of N.T. Wright um, he's an, an uh, uh, he's a very successful entrepreneur but an N.T. Wright fan on the side and um, uh you know, he's, he, he was saying, the gentleman from Los Angeles, anonymous gentleman, you know, says N.T. Wright's a heretic. Well, that's the most ridiculous statement. You know, do I agree with, with, with Tom Wright and everything that he says? No, no I don't. I, I think he's wrong in some things. But uh, it, uh, he, he is a godly man. Uh, I have, you know, pretty near firsthand experience because he was bishop of Durham, where mm -hmm. I started a church, not when I was there, but um, uh, in later years, and the testimonies of church leaders there as to his godliness and pastoral care, and he is a spirit-filled man, and uh, I can still disagree with him. But the thing is that 
you know, if you're secure in what you believe, you can disagree with people without bludgeoning them. Right. It's people who are actually, I think, insecure somehow. Hard, hard as though that may, may be to imagine. Most of the people that react in such an incendiary way toward people they disagree with have a, a f underlying personal insecurity issues that they're dealing with, including the doctrinal insecurities, and even though they would never admit it. Where is the line for you in terms of uh, calling something heresy or even calling someone a heretic in a non-bludgeoning way? Well, it's, there are those things for you where, you know, it's a, a clear transgression. Well, I think that, um, let me put it this way. Uh, um, I, I saw a quote from Andy Stanley. Now, I'm not a student of Andy Stanley. But he seems to be getting himself into some trouble lately. Um, and uh, a, a statement, he made a statement that, you know, we need to focus on the resurrection, not on the authority of Scripture, something like that, which is, to me, I think you're setting up a false opposition. Why can't we have both? You know, I think that's a ridiculous statement. But am I saying there are people who would say he's a heretic, right, and are saying that. So I would say no, but if you go down a certain road, at some point you or people that follow you will wind up in heresy. It's not that you're in it now. Um, it's not technically heretical to have a different, even to have a different, less high view of Scripture than you and I would have. It's what is the consequence of that? If, if you are propagating a weak view of Scripture because you don't like a doctrine that's in Scripture and you're planning to ditch it, and the only way you've got to ditching it is by weakening the authority of Scripture, the, the, uh, what, where, what, where are you headed, you know? And that's what I look at in, in people. Like Rob Bell started down a road a number of years ago, and he wound up in an apostasy, really, a denial of the faith, far as I understand, unless I'm incorrect. At least in its orthodox form, for sure. Right, and that's heresy. If you if you if you move out of the realm of Christian orthodoxy in terms of the fundamental doctrines of the faith, the divinity of Christ, the incarnation, the virgin birth, uh, you know, it, the um, uh, justification by faith and so on. Uh, if you if you move outside of those, then you're not an orthodox Christian anymore. You would not have been accepted as such in the first century church, and you shouldn't be in the 20th century church. And there's 2,000 years of, you know. But uh, there are a ton of other things that, you know, you and I might turn our nose up and say, well, I, I don't agree with that. I, I, right. I couldn't go down that road. I think it might even be a, create a problem for you, but I'm not going to say it's heresy. And uh, I, I, I do think, though, that it, there are things that we will address or face in this generation that previous generations would not have had to face because the surrounding culture didn't force them to face them. So for example, people often like to tote the fact that Jesus apparently never directly spoke about homosexuality. Um, and you know, you can approach that conversation a couple of different ways in regards to Jesus's words about marriage, and I believe it's Matthew 19. But the fact is that Jesus never expressly spoke to uh, two men in a sexual relationship with one another, nor to women. 
Um, but that's because he was speaking primarily to Jews who would have thought such a relationship to be sinful, and therefore they weren't broaching him with those kinds of questions, and he wasn't addressing that kind of error with them. He was more concerned with the hypocritical Pharisee who was caught up in adultery in his mind and his heart, even though he was seeing himself as better than the person who was caught up in the act physically. He wants to address that problem. But you can't say that uh, Jesus, therefore, was was okay with uh, homosexual sex. You can't say that. That would be completely disingenuous to a biblical perspective on family, sex, and marriage. A biblical perspective. And, and the reason for that is simply that Jesus consistently presented himself as under the authority of the scriptures. Just as I was about to say, a perspective that Jesus himself held. So there's going to be certain issues that we face that the first century or second century church isn't going to face that I do think is forces us to ask the question, does this make them heretical or are they still orthodox? Like for me, you cannot put a rainbow flag on your church and say that we are still an orthodox church because I think that the doctrine of marriage, sexual union, and family is something that separates you from the orthodox. And so I'm just using that as an example to say that things that have been historically orthodox for 2,000 years, that that um, paddock, if you will, <laughs> that we all eat from, that needs to be continually defined as the issues get continually crazier. I mean, we've talked about euthanasia on this show before. Um, what, what are your views? Certainly, you're going to you're going to look at some issues that are come, cropping up in our culture that's going to make us go, can an Orthodox Christian believe this? Yeah, no, I mean, I, it does need to be pointed out that the new, that although Jesus didn't have to deal with the issue of homosexuality as, as normal in society, Paul did. Totally. Because uh, it was uh, largely accepted in the, mm-hmm. in the, in the Roman culture. And I, I take Paul to be an authority on Jesus more than I take someone 2,100 or 2,000 years later to be an authority on Jesus. Like I would take Paul's word any day. So I'm all hip for that. But there's things that Paul never spoke to that we're going to have to speak to because Paul, he's, he's lived in a different culture as us. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I think that the challenge is we live, I mean, Christians, Christianity is, is, Countercultural, uh, by its in its very essence, and um, and I was just reading a scripture verse yesterday that underlined this to me. It's, I have to come back to it, try to come back to it. But um, Christianity is countercultural. Uh, it's always in the minority. It's never the group that takes over, and uh, so in any culture. Doesn't matter what the culture is, well, except uh, except for <laughs> except for in uh, except for in Rome, it was the group that took over. <laughs> yes, but the problem is that in the problem is that in in taking over, it lost what it was, and uh, and and didn't last anyway. But um, uh, so. Uh, the, it's just the problems or the challenges. What's going on out there in the pagan culture that all of us have always lived in as Christians? Mm-hmm. That the challenges may be different. I mean, if you're living in Africa, 
you're not having to face the onslaught of the LGBTQ community. It, that's just not an issue. However, there are other issues that perhaps we don't have to face. There are always issues in the pagan culture. Um, and, uh, you know, so maybe the label of heresy is not the right. Maybe there's a yeah, get, get, getting back to your point right. of heresy. I mean, um, maybe at that one is just unrepentant sin. Hanging the rainbow flag out, outside a, a church building um, indicates that the rod has gone very, very deep. Uh, because if you go inside, you'll find that the fundamental doctrines of the faith have already been denied right. in any of those establishments. Uh, so it's fruit, not root. It It is the fruit, not that is exactly right. And uh, you can go... It, you know, it usually starts or always starts in a denial of biblical authority. Why are so uh, many of those churches too? Why are they all um, Unitarian? What 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 is what about? Obviously, that's a heresy. But like, what about that heresy in, in particular leads to just total wokeness? Well, because I think the the, the Unitarians, a relatively small group, but the Unitarians were in the vanguard of theological liberalism. Um, they uh, moved away from biblical authority a couple hundred years ago, and you know, and then they didn't see any point in maintaining the Trinity. It was kind of an embarrassment because they had a whole different concept of God, probably more of a, a de, de what we call deism mm -hmm. than theism. You know, a, a a distant God that made the universe and then doesn't tinker around with it, leaves us to do what we want. So. Uh, if God is not Trinity too, then that kind of puts you in the position of defining God's attributes, because His attributes yeah. at that point can only be what's the term "imminent Trinity" and "economic Trinity." I always get confused. Which one of those is people facing? Uh, that would be the economic Trinity. So, if God is not Trinity, He can only be He can only be economic in His expression because He has to have the existence of creation in order to express Himself. And at that yeah. point, you get to define what the expression is like. And that, that does become a problem in, you know, the, for instance, United Pentecostalism, which has always denied the Trinity. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that is a heresy. Um, uh, even though many of those people otherwise would say they love the Lord. Um, but for the most part, uh, heresy is hacking away at something that is foundational uh, in terms of the historic confession of the church and moving away from it. And it always leads to, in the end, to, you know, a complete apostasy and, and moving away from the faith. So, but I just think that we, we need to be a little more charitable and, and I, you know, I want to put the finger in people that are throwing mud at other Christians and saying, who gave you the authority to do that? Who appointed you to the status of Old Testament prophet? Basically, what they're professing to be, and using the internet to th throw mud at you, you know people who. What is your standing in the body of Christ? You know, do do you have a place of leadership? Well, at least the gentleman in Los Angeles has a recognized place of leadership, but he's raised up a generation of followers that don't have any, 
any status or right to speak into the body of Christ, but just use the internet to do it anyway. And I think it's disgraceful. Uh, and and we need to set a, a better example than that. And, and to be fair to him, it's it's not just his uh, his people that get caught up in in that. And I, you know, go ahead. No, he's just, it's just an example. Yeah, and you're right. We need to set an example, you know. Um, You and I need to set an example. How can, because certainly the example is not to say nothing when something is, you know, when things are on fire, you don't say nothing. So when you say be charitable, you don't mean be silent. You, You literally mean be charitable. Talk the issue, don't attack the person. Yeah, and and call something heresy without necessarily calling someone a heretic. I'm I'm reluctant to throw mud at people. I mean, let's because it clouds the issue and it descends into an emo- emotionalism. Let's let's look at the let's look at the issue that's on the table and examine it rather than throwing mud at people who propagate it. Yeah, I'm with you on that for sure. Let's have a discussion about cessationism mm-hmm. versus continuationism let's have a a rational reasonable discussion mm-hmm. about that and included in that is a recognition that people are entirely orthodox christians on both sides of the argument totally that that um that they love the lord they want to win people to christ and extend the kingdom and uh, then we can, th- and and then we can maybe have a, a some kind of a reasonable, rational discussion. Yeah. Instead of hosting a conference where you oh, throw everybody else under the bus. And from a local church perspective, just teach what your doctrine is. Teach what you believe. N- nobody's forcing the people in your church to be there. And so, if what you're teaching resonates with them, then great, you're going to make disciples. And if you are fully convinced in your own mind that what you're teaching is biblical. Uh, and you have wise counsel around you, then uh, more power to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're right, um, but that's a better approach than standing in your pulpit and saying, this person's wrong, this person's wrong, this person's wrong. And ultimately, you're going to reap what you sow. People are just going to do that right back at you. And I, I for sure don't want to spend my Monday morning waking up to all the sermons that were preached about how I was wrong on X, Y, and Z. I'd rather just teach my church what we believe and create the culture that we see in Scripture um, and try to build something with, with gold, silver, and precious stones rather than wood, hay, and straw and see if it stands the test of time and the fire that's coming. Amen. There was a particular topic that got you thinking about this, which was... Well, I was thinking about... Yeah, uh, I was thinking about prosperity, and I was thinking about the prosperity gospel. I was thinking about this for a number of reasons. First of all, um, uh discussions with a, a good friend of mine who had had some very, very bad experiences uh, in the area of the prosperity gospel uh, and had seen, you know, where it had led to and some of the consequences. And that's a very recent discussion. Uh, and um, and then I noticed something that came up on um, Instagram from a guy in California uh, it's always those California. Well, I know that's the that's a problem. But anyway, um, anyway, this young guy was um, advocating, you know, that God does want you prosperous. Um, now he seemed to, of course, this is the problem with with internet sound bites that the nuance disappears. 
uh, he seemed to be linking it to the kingdom. So I thought, well, you know, this is where the the role of the Bible teacher comes in, where, you know, there are, you, you don't want to, you, you want to retain the baby and, th- you know, throw out the dirty bathwater at the same time. Um, and I think there's just so much confusion in this issue. Either people have gone into, you know, full-throated prosperity gospel um, and, uh, and gone right off the deep end. And it's, it's, it's a, not a healthy place to be because, first of all, it's an illusion because God will not cater Could to you. Why in the prosperity gospel simply? Well, the, the, it, it, the prosperity go- gospel, it's really an offshoot of the faith movement. And the faith movement, I mean, they did it being like the word of faith movement. Yeah, the faith movement. Um, I did a, I did. If anyone's interested, I did a course on this for Th- Theos University some time ago. But the faith movement originated with a man called uh, E. W. Kenyon, and Kenyon was influenced by Mary Baker Eddy. He denied it, but he was. And Mary Baker Eddy was the founder of Christian Science. And she had this idea, which she borrowed from Greek Platonic philosophy, that um, what was real was the immaterial, and the material world was not as real as the immaterial, and that actually the material world, to some extent, wasn't real at all. And so out of this, she developed a a, um, view of healing, that healing is something that goes on in the physical realm. It isn't really real. You can take authority over it with your mind, and um, you don't have to go to a doctor. You can eradicate sickness by moving into the immaterial realm of the spirit or whatever. Now, she was not an Orthodox Christian believer, so um, but Kenyon got a hold of this, and he put it within more biblical categories and said, you know, um, well, we all know that God is spirit, that God lives in eternity, that this world is transitory, and therefore this world, you know, is is subject to the eternal world, and you can take out of the spiritual world where there's real reality, and you can um, you can speak to obstacles that are going on in the physical world around you and bring them under your control. And uh, and so he generated the this word of faith, positive confession, that if, you know, whatever is, and it started in the realm of healing, but it's, it's kind of a, an imbalanced view of biblical healing because there's truth in it. And that's yeah, I was going to say, I remember reading one of his books years ago. A friend had recommended it to me. I had never heard of him, didn't know his history. The book was called The Blood Covenant. And I remember reading it and certainly feeling like there was some true things in it, but you can definitely tell his view is incredibly lopsided. And, and, and heresy means part. The Greek word means right. part. Right. So there is truth in it. That's, that's, the, that's the problem with it. And so, uh, and so anyway... Um, and I think in in the extreme view, it does become heretical. And the, and I'll say the reason for that is not so much of as, as this mistaken view of spirit and body. Um, the reason for that is because it puts 
us, it puts uh, humanity, me, on the throne. And, every, and God becomes a kind of an accessory that must, uh, you know, he's like the waiter that when I snap my fingers the right way, he has to come to my table and bring me what I want. Yeah, it's like, and not, I, not your will, but my will be done. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't think is is really what Kenyon, I mean, who's that old saying? I mean, I don't yeah. probably think that's what he intended, but that really is the effect of it. I call it hyper-Arminianism, and as you know, I'm not Arminian. So, but that puts that puts me on the throne, and of course, God is God, and he won't have anything to do with that, and so the fact that I can huff and puff like the prophets of Baal and slash myself and pronounce all these things is not going to make God produce a, you know, Mercedes-Benz for me, or a Land Rover, or for that matter, a physical healing. You know, God, that, that's all going to... And now, in, in the faith movement, it started with the area of healing, and it moved into the realm of material prosperity. So not only could you ask God for a physical healing, um, which, you know, biblically speaking, there's no question about it that, uh, you know, that we believe in, in divine... Of course you can ask God for healing. Un unless you're the other gentleman from Los Angeles that's not Jake Sweetman. Um, we, we, you actually believe in, and then you better not ask. Don't you dare ask. You had better not. Well, actually, I don't think you, I'm not even sure you could communicate with God on that theology because God only communicates through the Bible. Uh, that seems to, to don't, which is, so don't is bizarre to me, but anyway, um, and so, you know, people, and so, and so, uh, what I, the way my theory of it is that you had men. Like, for instance, Kenneth Hagin was a godly man. He had a dynamic, powerful experience as a young man of physical, miraculous physical healing. And he was a man of faith. And I think God gave him uh, extraordinary gifts of faith, 1 Corinthians 12, gifts of faith. But there was a confusion between the 1 Corinthians 12 gift of faith and the faith that we live by day by day. And you can be someone that has a prophetic gift and operates it all the time or frequently, um, but you don't then go and teach other people that they make all their decisions through prophecy. And so you can be someone who has a gift of faith for, let's say, finances or for healing, but you don't go and teach people that they live that way 24 hours a day and conduct their normal decision decisions that day that way. And I think that's the confusion between the gift of faith and our daily faithfulness to Christ. And, um, and so hundreds and thousands of people, and it's gone all over the world, unfortunately, into th third world where people are poor, you know, and, and, and this is a very attractive teaching, um, but it doesn't work because God won't, you know, dance to your tune or my right. tune. And so people get disillusioned by the hundreds and thousands, and they walk away, maybe even from the faith, and blame God. And then the rest of us say, we don't want anything to do with that. Right. There's, the, and, there's the reaction. And we switch to the other extreme and, 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 and think, well, we've got to live in humble poverty and can't ask God for anything, and right. it's unspiritual to et cetera, et cetera. And so, and even think, to go so far as to say you, you actually don't reap what you sow, so sowing is not important, and you should never expect God to bless you. 
and there's and where is the faith? You know, you 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 can't exercise faith because, and then you get into the opposite. You know, instead of, um, you know, God's the waiter that has to come to your table. You know, God really is like an owner. To use the metaphor, God is or the analogy is more like God is an owner of a restaurant that never bothers providing you with food at all. You know, and, and you've gone to the other extreme. Um, and so, uh, so I, I pondered this and I think, uh, I was praying for a, a friend of, of mine and yours who contacted me a few days ago and said, I'm in need of financial provision. And, um, I, I want to pray with faith because I know this man, he's a godly man. I appreciate him. And, and I, I believe that God wants to provide, you know, and I think that the enemy is has got into the situation and is opposing him in 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 uh probably his business you know dealings and i want to say well lord please would you come and destroy the power of the enemy um because you want this man to be a successful businessman and entrepreneur because he's a giver into the body of christ etc cetera, etc cetera. and i do think that that actually uh you know i'm sure you agree with me in this that that there are people who are kingdom wealth generators. I completely agree with you on that. I, I I would suspect your dad is one of them, and and that that you know it's just that um, I can't expect just because I see someone else that God is blessed financially uh, and entrusted with a great deal of money doesn't mean that He's going to entrust me. You know that is not part of His call in my life. I don't expect Him to do that, but I don't want to reign in the party. And say, hey, uh, you know, there, there's another guy over there. I mean, I knew a guy in Toronto, pastor, and he was preaching on vision one Sunday, and it, there was a man visited his church, and I'd uh, never seen him before, and he never saw him again. At the end of the service, the man came up and said, "I believe in your vision," and hand him a check for a million dollars. There you go. Well, pre yeah. this lesson of the day: preach on vision, pastors. <laughs> you know, and so I mean. Where did that come from? Well, the guy was a kingdom wealth generator. And you hear about these, if you've got your eyes open, you hear about them all, all the time. Um, so how do we believe in prosperity and provision without it going, you know, off the deep end? And I think it's the same way that we believe in healing without it going on the, off the deep end, or charismatic manifestations without that going off the deep end, or anything else without it going off the deep end. We have to stay in biblical balance. And uh, and I I firmly believe that God is our provider. It's it's one of his names. The Lord, I mean, when it says the Lord's your provider, Jehovah Jireh, it means the Lord is the one who sees. He sees you in your need and me in my need, and he provides for us. Yeah, and the thing that I go on about there is needs very... Uh, in comparison to context. Um, and I think need changes with vision too. So um, kind of my conviction on that is your your needs are always going to be directly corresponding to whatever it is that you feel called to pursue in life. So if I feel called to pursue building a particular kind of church, for instance, here in Los Angeles, uh, my needs are going to be directly attached to that. Like I don't need a a building that can seat twenty five people. I, I need something actually quite a bit larger than that because of the vision that I have for the kind of church that I want to build. 
Now, you can have another conversation about whether or not I'm going for the right thing. Uh, and and that, that is a worthwhile conversation. Obviously, I'm convinced in my own mind that I'm building what God has called me to build. Um, but that that need is dependent upon that. So your vision for life does have a direct impact on what your needs are going to be. You can't go to God and say, this is my vision, now you need to provide. But I think you can partner with God in terms of, God, what do you want me to do? What's my What, what are you calling me to? And then if you feel clarity and there's counsel in your life, you say, yeah, I think he, that is what God's calling you to do. I think you can step and expect that God will provide as you step. Not always going to be the guy who comes up to you after your church service and says, here's a million dollars. It's actually much more likely that it's going to be hundreds of people saying, uh, here, here's my $300 or, or $5,000, whatever it is, giving out of my lack even. And God, grace moves on that in mighty ways. And by, by a lot of sacrifice, great churches are built, great businesses are built, great anything, great families are built through a lot of sacrifice. And God meets with provision as we step out in faith. It's like every step on the water is, is a, a miracle in and of itself. It's not just that Peter walked on water and that was a miracle. It was that every single step was one miracle after another, but you don't experience the next miracle until you take the next step. I like, um, I think it was William Carey that said, God's will done God's way will never lack God's provision. Great. And uh, I've always felt, you know, that in my own life, uh, that God would provide for me in relation to what he called me to do. And once I, I knew what he called me to do, then I could be sure of his provision. And I've had miraculous provision in my life. Um, and we've had uh, lots of financial challenges. We raised eight children on a pastor's salary and not a big church. Um, but God provided and God kept on providing. And I, I could look at it and I say, I could look at it and say, well, you know, why couldn't just God have given me a million dollars, you know, and I wouldn't have had to worry. Well, maybe God wanted to keep me on a short leash. I don't know. But the fact is that every provision of God is a blessing. And, uh, and I don't need the extra. You know, we look for the extra. Well, why? I don't need the extra unless God has a purpose for giving me extra. Uh, I'm not in the business of accumulating money for the sake of accumulating money unless there is a reason why I need that money. And it's been a joy for Elaine and I to live uh, in dependency on God and to have had hundreds of situations where he met our need, you know, at the last minute or in an unusual way. Uh, and, uh, that's just a privilege, I think. And, uh, and so I think that when Paul said, I've learned how to abound with a lot and with a little, you know, Paul knew how on those days when someone, you know, gave him a big fat sum of money, it didn't corrupt his walk with God. Um, uh, and, and, and on days when he had very little, he was living in the reminder that God had never failed him and that God would come through for it. Something I had recently that I thought was very helpful was the uh, true prosperity is the ability to enjoy the things that God provides. If you can't enjoy those things, 
uh, but rather always just want more of them, then those things are very obviously your idol. They are your compass in life. But if you can enjoy genuinely the things that God provides and hold them loosely uh, and look to him with gratitude for the stuff that he puts in your hand or the finances he provides for you, I think that's a pretty good indicator. Can you genuinely enjoy it or has it corrupted your heart? Because you can't, you can't actually enjoy the things that corrupt you. Because it's decaying, it's decaying you fly inside out. Someone asked John D. Rockefeller, uh, you know, who was one of the original sort of multimillionaires, what was the best million you ever made? And he said the next. Next, exactly. You, you can't enjoy it. And, and, and that, that fruit will be shown. That's what I call a poverty spirit. You can be rich and have a poverty spirit. Exactly. But here's another thought. A Christian's prosperity is measured not by how much we have, but by how much we give. Exactly. Because if you look at people who are walking in God's provision with a, a true provision, the money is flowing through them. Through them. And so what if they have a nicer house than you or I have, or a nicer vehicle? Uh, I mean, who cares? You know, look what King Solomon had. Uh, that's, it's, it's not an issue. If I have an issue because God's given somebody else more than he's given me, then there's a problem in my heart. Mm -hmm. um, but if I see someone that loves God and who's a giver, and God is blessed financially with a, a nicer house and a nicer car than I've got, then I should be rejoicing in uh, the way that God is using that person. And, that, and that's that tension, right? Where it's like we recognize that God blesses someone because they've because they're acting as some kind of conduit. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're more generous than the person who doesn't have the same stuff. It just might be a particular grace on that person's life. I don't know. Um, but well, there's... It's the parable of the talents, isn't it? I mean, they make much, God, yeah. God simply chooses to give some right. people more than, than others. Right. And he creates them with the capacity. Not everybody has the capacity to open a business, right? you know, or to run a business, uh, or, you know, some people have the capacity, some Christian leaders have the capacity to lead a small church, some a medium, some a large church. And there's no ranking. You know, you can pastor a small church, but raise up somebody within that church that reaches millions. So, I mean, you know, it's all hidden in the economy of God. We just have to submit to his ways. And the point is that he expects you to grow what you have. And so whether or not, if you're a, if you're a two-capacity person and not a five-capacity person, the master's expectation is still that he expects you to make your two into four or, mm -hmm. you know, to see some growth there. I'm always struck by that, that the servant who's called wicked and lazy, he returned the one in the form that it was given to him. He didn't damage it. He didn't lose it. It wasn't less, it wasn't lessened in value when he handed it back to the master. And yet he was still called wicked and lazy. And I think it's because a lot of times we think that we can just babysit the things that God gives us and he'll be pleased with the fact that we just maintained it at its current state in which he gave it. But God is looking for growth and multiplication. I, I think that's unmistakable. And so whether or not you're the guy with five is, is irrelevant. Do you make something of what God has given you? And, and so I think as you make something of it, your capacity actually grows. If I start with two and I wind up with four, well, I still got breath in my lungs. Can I make four, eight? I think I can. And so I'm going to keep trying to be faithful as far as I can tell, faithfulness is fruitfulness. Is 
faithfulness is not just hanging around, that's babysitting. And and I think in that, your capacity can grow. It's like we were talking about with faith. It's, it's a quality thing, not a quantity thing. It's not getting more, it's refining what I have. And so in that growing of capacity, I'm refining my faith. And in my own personal journey with finances, for example, God has taken me on a journey of learning how to give more generously and to take bigger steps of faith, greater risks in, ser- in terms of what I'm willing to trust God with and what I'm willing to say, hey, we don't need this or um, we're going to forego whatever X, Y, Z thing is because I want to be a giver. And in that, God has blessed us. I'm not a prosperity gospel guy. I don't believe in the heavenly ATM, but I do believe that God provides for those who part with him. Um, and so there's, there's some kind of nuance there uh, and, and maybe you want to help me tease that out. Well, no, I'm, I think you put it right. I think, I think it's the heart that's at the center of it and our walk with God. And the question is, what has God called me to do? Going back to that saying, God's will done God's way never likes God's provision. What the question is, what has God called me to do? Um, and what do I require to do? what God has called me to do. And if you are, even if you're a Christian, if you're not tuned in to obedience and faithfulness and you're not walking with the Lord and you don't have a concept of what God wants you to do, then the vacuum will be filled by all the things that you want to do. And then you'll, God will become like the waiter that has to be summoned to the table to provide for what you want to do. And the question is, well, does God want you to do that? You know, does God want you to have a big house, a fancy car, holidays here or there? I mean, does God want you to do it? See, the problem with the prosperity gospel is the automatic presumption is that the more you're in tune with God, the more money you'll have. And that's wrong because Jesus, I mean, sorry. Make Jesus and love all about very non-spiritual. Yeah, I mean, you know, you cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. And Paul said, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. So you're in extremely dangerous territory there. But how do we redeem it? How do we, you know, Jesus said you can't serve God and mammon, but in the same context, he said, seek first the kingdom and all these things that everybody else is running after will be added. So the idea to me is we can adopt a Gentile mindset and run after the things of this world, even if we profess to be Christians, or we can come into submission to the will of God and the things that we need will come running after us. Uh, and it's, that's even why I would rather live. Even in another place, Jesus says, um, those who give up, you know, X, Y, and Z, brothers and sisters and family and houses will receive both in this age and the age to come. And I don't take that as Jesus saying, hey, you know, Whatever you physically give, you're going to get back in greater measure here and now. I think Jesus is probably saying something closer to life in the kingdom is going to provide you with the, the things that you need, whether that's literal, literally a house for you or the fact that you just have family, you have a relationship, you have a, always have a place to lay your head down at night because of your your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's probably something closer to that. But even in that, I, I wouldn't want to too quickly throw away the fact that Jesus loves to provide. I mean, he is a provider. He is the giver of the garden, um, and he will be the giver of the of the, the heavenly city as well. 
And so probably a lot of this, if we if we're overly reactive, we could probably look back at our own family history and the things that we've imbibed from maybe our our experiences growing up with our own folks. Um, and we would do well just to kind of look with a critical eye at our own perspectives and make sure that we're not being overly reactive um, one way or the other, and certainly not falling into the heresy of uh, prosperity gospel. But to be overly ascetic as well is, uh, I think, to, to fall outside the bounds of what Paul says is a good idea. Um, so, yeah. I know for me, when I see someone prospering, and I know the person, and I know their character, I love it. I love seeing them prosper. And they're always generous people, you know? They're, they're always the first person to pull out their wallet at lunch. So no, no wonder God increases their world. I think that's a proverb. Well, it should be if it isn't. It's like, you know, it should be in the Bible if it isn't. That's the, I think, the Eugene Peterson version. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. Yeah. Those who refresh themselves will they, will themselves be refreshed. So there's, there is a biblical principle there. There's no doubt about it. So I think it's a message to us. Uh, you know, one of the reasons we need really good Bible teachers, and I, I do believe that a movement without strong Bible teachers is a sitting duck for Satan. Not that everybody has to be a Bible teacher, but um, one of the reasons we need good Bible teachers is because we need to be able to uh, thread the needle on a lot of these topics yep. uh, and guard the sheep against extremes because we'll ricochet back and forth uh, and we'll miss the truth. Uh, we'll go in one direction and another, and it's a tragedy. I mean, the body of Christ needs massive amounts of money. Uh, the kingdom needs money if it moves forward. That's just a fact. You can't start a church without money. It's how Jesus' ministry moved forward. It's how Paul's ministry moved forward. Absolutely. Yep. And we need to be unapologetic about that. Uh, but it's a, it's a hindrance when you see the abuse of money, especially in the church, is disgraceful. But you can't uh, give up. We we've got to, you know, not not and it's not not just for churches, but it's in the lives of individuals that God has called to do mighty things. It takes money to raise a family. Takes money to do to run a business. Takes money to do all these things. Yep. And money is neutral. It's neither positive or negative. Nor negative. It's neutral. It's what you do with it. That's why. That's why, you know, people misquote Paul as saying money is the root of all evil. No, he did not say that. He said the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil things. So let's look at and exegete the passage carefully. If you, you know, that's the problem. Money can be used for good or for bad. It's, it's where is our heart at uh, in our walk with God. How do you square this with, let's take an interaction, and we can, you know, kind of wind down at this point, but let's take an interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Jesus' call to him is very specific um, and uh, very costly. Now, I don't take that and haven't taken that to be Jesus' prescription for every person to sell everything they own and give it to the poor. Um, but... That's a it's a confronting passage. 
Yeah, I think Jesus was saying, you need to place all of your assets under my lordship. And I think that is a question that all of us have to answer. Are we holding on to stuff? So that was the problem with Ananias and Sapphira, that apart from walking in deception, they also, well, part of the deception, I suppose, was, I mean, they, 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 they did deceive, but I mean, part of the deception, their self-deception, I guess, was that they could profess to serve Christ uh, and not have him be Lord over their finances. They, they still had veto power over how their finances were handled. And so that, you know, we just have to be willing, and that was the challenge, Jesus to the rich young ruler, uh, to place our financial assets, just like everything else, under the Lordship of Christ. And you know as well as I do, there are people in, all sorts of people in church, that will be very pious about wanting to serve the Lord. But when you address the issue of how you're spending your money, it's like, well, that's none of your blankety-blank business, Pastor. Yes, absolutely. I think it's not not that I'm trying to control somebody's money. It's it's if you have a problem in this area in your heart, that is my business because you have a serious problem in your walk with God, and my job is to help care for your soul. I tell people that too when it comes to pastoral relationships with people and the discussion of money. People get weird about it. But if indeed our heart is where our treasure is, how could I ever be expected to pastor somebody and not deal with the the one thing that Jesus says is the primary director of their heart and their affections. Um, so I, I don't have any issue whatsoever as a pastor making that a point of discussion and uh, even getting in the weeds about it. I think that should be a, uh, a topic of conversation. Um, and I'll just kind of throw out my own two cents too on that story of the, the rich young ruler. It, it does not seem to me that that is a, uh, a practice that the early church picked up in terms of asking every person everywhere to sell everything they have, give it to the poor, um, and then become a, a Christian. I think Jesus was giving a very specific instruction to a specific person because Jesus knew what his ultimate issue is. It's interesting to me that in that, uh, I, when Jesus lists the commands, he, he does not list, uh, you shall have no other gods before me, because clearly that man was breaking that commandment. All the others that Jesus listed, yeah, he, he's like, yeah, I've been keeping those since I was a kid. Um, but that most basic one of having no other God, uh, he clearly was not doing too well with that because he went away so sorrowful. I, I think we all need to have a willingness to do what Jesus asks. And Jesus asks specific things of specific people. He's going to call everybody to leave their sin behind. But as you said, money itself is a neutral thing. To have money is, is not to be in sin. To love money uh, is to open yourself up to every kind of sin under the sun. So this has been a great discussion, David. I love that you've been thinking about this and uh, I've enjoyed talking about it with you. Same. Thanks everyone for listening. And uh, again, I want to encourage you to uh, take out your phone, text the word good to 39383 and check out how Dwell Bible can help your church or you as an individual engage with God's word. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe on YouTube, like us, rate us, all that stuff. It's a huge help. And we will see you right back here next week. God bless you guys.